0: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Dalbert, and I'm Matt Sanderson. And in today's episode we're going to be looking at some more mythos deities...
1: Cyaga and Byattis.
2: but before we get into all that good stuff what is going on
1: well that thing that we mentioned last episode that was lurking near the horizon has got that a little step closer submissions yeah. for the blasphemous tome issue 11 it's coming uh, we'd like everything in by the end of april please yeah you can just about make out the
0: shape of it now as it comes over the horizon
2: <laughs> yeah so if you have a submission that you'd like to send us we Generally look for articles or short fiction of up to 500 words. We've even published poetry before. Or alternatively, pictures. We can take full colour artwork now, or black and white artwork, whatever suits you best. You can send that to submissions at com.
1: You know, one of the things that I think I got into the habit of during the pandemic was seeing how much I could how much strain i could put on my local postman and hmm. i understand it's been quite a busy week so far for our uh, poor letterboxes and poor mailmen or mail people so i received a copy of nameless horrors uh, the call of cthulhu collection of scenarios
0: that all three of us worked on which has uh, got a lovely new hardback release
2: with a new cover and all new layout and full color artwork and well I guess that one of the exciting things about that is that it's brought it in line with the design of all the other seventh edition books because yeah. it was always the standout before that it predated kind of the standardization of the the seventh edition line and so it was black and white and soft cover.
0: Yeah
1: and it's got a leatherette
0: just for the uh, collectors out there as well. Also, through the mailbox this week, got a copy of Rivers of London, also in that hardback format that you just described, Scott, with some great artwork and layout and so on. So, that's the new role playing game based on Ben Aronovich's uh, book series, Rivers of London, which myself and Lynn Hardy and Mike Mason worked on and developed. So, uh, yep, that's exciting stuff. And a smaller
2: envelope containing. The Blasphemous Tome 4A. Woo-hoo. This is the one with Evan Dawkins' Panthulu cover, is it? That's it the one. It sure is. I adore that cover.
1: We updated it as well, so it was as full a colour as possible. Mm. Some of the original artwork we got was still black and white, but at least where there were colour images that we had turned to black and white to make it consistent with everything else, they are now presented in glorious colour.
0: It took a little while for the penny to drop, didn't it, that we could be like, oh... We can, we can just do this in colour now.
2: <laughs> yeah, a little while. And speaking of nameless horrors, the three of us and Mike Mason did an interview with the Really Dicey YouTube channel recently as well. And that is now out. We'll put a link in the show notes. And so if you want to find out more about nameless horrors and what went into it and what's different in the new edition and stuff like that, take a look. And you can find
0: those show notes at BlasphemousTomes.com
1: And now on to our main topic, Siega and Biatis. Once again, we are returning to the deities of the Cthulhu mythos. This time, we're focusing on gods associated with specific locations, drawing on the works of a wider range of mythos authors than usual. Deity number one, Siega.
2: First of all, how the fuck do we pronounce that name?
0: I like to say it different every time.
2: (laughs) Well, I think that's fair. And I was looking at this and I was wondering whether... Eddie Bertin, who created this, deliberately created that name to be as ambiguous or as difficult to pronounce as possible, particularly in English. Every part of it almost is ambiguous. So, I mean, it's starting with a C. So, because it's CY, I'd assume that's a soft C, but I've heard Matt pronounce it as Geiger. Hmm. So you could potentially look at it that way, but any word I can think of in English off the top of my head that begins with CY is generally a soft C.
0: So like cycle and cyborg?
2: Yes. And then you've got the A with a diacritic above it. So depending on which language you're looking at, that could be in different things. But again, if we're assuming that it's an English pronunciation, that's telling you that the two vowels there are pronounced separately so it would be it's telling you not to run the a and the e together but then gh gh in english i mean there's Mm. no consistent pronunciation of that either you could pronounce it as an f you could pronounce it as a g you could pronounce it as gh pronounce it as p if if it's like hiccup
1: i like that the ebook reader that I use to read this, or rather have it spoken to me, because I found this nice little function where you can just push read aloud and it will try to interpret things. It had difficulty with certain words, but it was consistent with this. It pronounced it Sayoha. I had to look back and go, hang on a minute, what that that isn't Kayaga. What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) But at least it was consistent.
2: If I were to try to come up with a pronunciation for it or a consistent pronunciation, I'd probably go for Sayaga. Saya. Say Because
1: that was consistent.
2: Yes. <laughs> exactly. That is the point that I'm making. It is a linguistic trap.
1: How about we just pick a different pronunciation each and that'll make it even better for the episode then? Yes. <laughs> so where does Siega come from? Well,
0: Siega originates from Darkness. My name is. Or my name is Darkness. <laughs> a 1976 story. A uh, short story, but not that short, by Belgian weird fiction writer, Eddie C. Bertan.
1: It was first published in the anthology, The Disciples of Cthulhu. We're introduced to say you're in the story as something beyond the man-made laws of good and evil, a natural force, a form of darkness that has always existed and which has intermittent periods of consciousness. Kind of describes me usually between uh, Monday and <laughs> Friday, 8.30 till 5.00 why stop at weekdays man? yes <laughs> well as so usually with definitely within that period but i'm, I'm <laughs> okay. more awake now you are you are yeah
2: during these moments of lucidity it hated as only something can hate which is beyond good and evil its whole consciousness became that hate because it was the only thing it could do When I was reading that section of the story, I was reminded an awful lot of Han Mellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, because there's that description of AM, the artificial intelligence in it, where it's talking about the degree of its hate, and there's this wonderfully long poetic description of just how much it hates. I wondered whether that was an influence on this story, because there were definite echoes here.
0: Like entities such as Cthulhu and Glackey, Sieger's dreams touched the minds of humans, driving most gibbering mad. Some were more strongly protected and just felt the outer touches of its dreams and tried to interpret them consciously in essays or used them unconsciously in weird stories.
1: An American investigator named Herbert Ramon travels to a small village called Fryhul's Garden? I think i got it right in the frankish Jura mountains he even sets it in a place that's hard to pronounce <laughs> searching for an ancient temple on the Dun- Dunk <sighs> the dark hill learn english damn it <laughs> he's following clues found in a pair of mythos tomes called oh, fuck's sake <laughs> i love that you got this on that
2: oh i couldn't have planned this better
0: it just goes <laughs> on and on. Oh,
1: this is gonna be a long day. What are these times called? Pat? <laughs> <laughs> called Lehu and von Denen ver verdam- Damten of the Damned.
2: Just put it in English. Yeah, just just
0: use the <laughs> translation. I think
2: God's sake. <laughs> These tomes suggest that there is a temple on a hill near Fryhouse Garden, dedicated to a god so frightening that they dare not name it. The illustration of the temple's guardian is especially disturbing.
0: This drawing here was much more than just a being with aspects of a vulture and a bat. The thing was partly human or seemed so at first sight, but no longer when one looked closely at its details. The eyes were cold and fishy, all four of them, and placed sidewise of the head. The body itself had scales. The five arms were long and spidery, covered with hair or thorns. The hands, each possessing a different number of fingers, were clumps of veined flesh. The fingers, nailless and looking more like small twisting tentacles. The lower part of the body had explicit male and female sexual organs, but obscenely oversized ones. It stood on two feet, ending in bird-like claws. The creature held two of its arms in front of it. In one it held the nude and seemingly unconscious body of a woman, from whose back bat wings sprouted. In the other outstretched tentacle arm it had a toad-like being with oversized bulging eyes and two forked tongues
2: lots of imagery that we'll come back to i think later in this story
1: well i'm pretty certain i don't remember two huge balls being mentioned again uh, later on (laughs) when ramon explores the hill he finds no temple but literally stumbles across a half-buried statue Hey, some people pass spot-hidden in a lot of different ways. (laughs) Ramon recognises this as one of the entities depicted in one of those books, (laughs) the one beginning with L. The Watchers, or Guardians, known as Vayan. See, that I can vaguely pronounce.
2: (laughs) Five of them. The black light, the white fire, which is blacker than night. The white dark, which is more red than the fire. The winged woman and the green moon. They all keep and guard him in his darkness. In conversation with a
0: local vicar, Raymond learns that the Vayans were placed there by a priest in 1860 and serve a double purpose, protecting the temple, but also restraining the god's power.
2: (laughs) This vicar is such a Call of Cthulhu NPC, isn't
0: he? Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. totally.
2: He is just mr exposition but i mean he serves a more active purpose later in the story but yeah he is the guy that you go to in the village who knows all the mythos information that you need to get in order to progress with your investigation
0: yeah this whole story is pretty strange experience reading it it seemed a bit cliched and a bit so at first but the more you get into it the more you get into the sort of strange atmosphere of it, I think it works really well. Mm. Oh, yeah. By this stage, I'm I'm kind of getting
2: into it. Yeah, I mean, by the time you get to the end, it goes full-ball weird. It's a very unusual story. Mm. It reminded me, particularly in The Escalation and how weird it got very much of Led Baron's story, The Broadsword, which has a similar swerve into absolute bugfuckitude.
1: I know the point when it gets to uh, the weirdness, because, yeah, I've definitely got a point to say on that. But anyway, th- at this point, I could still follow what was going on. <laughs> mm. Ramon learns that there is still worship of Sayoha, switching <laughs> it up into a different one, in the town, taking place atop the hill on the full moon. Wow, they're just getting it wrong. It should be under a gibbous moon.
2: Come on. There is a reason for that, though, Matt. There is a reason <laughs> why it's the full moon.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. But no one in the town can remember taking part after each ceremony. bit like me, memory like Swiss cheese.
2: The night before the full moon, Ramon has a dream at this hilltop temple. He sees the moon above the hill turn green and then the moon split. He realised then that the sky was not a sky and that the illuminated green thing was not the moon, but the eye of an enormous shadow which spread as a dark blot between earth and the real sky. The eye looked down at him with horrible contempt, and for a short moment he obtained a realization of the enormity of the being which hung watching above him. The shadow in the sky changed, And then there was something which was blacker than black, darker than dark, and an enormous claw came down and reached for him.
1: That's no moon. It's (laughs) it's not a space station, but it's just a big, big eye. Yes, that's what I like to think Raymond said. (laughs) Raymond realises that he's not dreaming after all and finds himself pursued by the Nagai. We'll have to find different pronunciations for them too. Monstrous servitors of Kyaga. The toad like body was transparent, the pulsating innards covered only by a thin layer of leathery skin. It had the hind legs of a frog and the forelegs of a man. It moved crab like, crawling on its lumpy belly and pushing with the force of its hind legs, giving itself direction by muscular movements of its belly. The forelegs were raised mantis like, as in prayer, all four of them. The face, if such could be called, consisted mainly of bulging eyes and an oversized mouth with two forked tongues.
2: Yeah, these are creepy little things, aren't they? Not that little, but yeah, I do like those as Lovecraftian monsters. In fact, all the descriptions of the alien horrors in this story, I, I think, are just amongst the best I've read in mythos fiction
1: it definitely does read like an entry you'd find in the monster manual that it is very descriptive very visual in its representation it's not like oh my god the indescribable horror that i'm then going to spend the next two pages describing <laughs> it's it's very detailed
2: hmm I'm sure we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but that cliché about Lovecraft saying that something is indescribable, I mean, he took the piss out of that in The Unnameable. That whole story is just him talking about describing things as indescribable and mocking it. But Lovecraft himself, if anything, over-described things. Well, he says
0: it's indescribable. Then he goes on to describe it, doesn't he? He sort of says, it was indescribable. It had pulsating in it, insides and uh, the, the hind legs of a frog and the forelegs of a man. And it moved like a crab. It's like, well, it was indescribable. You are it, But I think that the fact that he says it's indescribable sets up in your mind that it's going to be, you know, I'm not going to be able to picture this, but here's all the parts. How do I put them together in my head?
2: Actually, maybe that's why this whole thing never works for me anyway, because having aphantasia, I can't picture anything anyway, so everything's indescribable to me.
0: <laughs> that's all indescribable, Scott. Yes. Feeling as if he is doing something preordained, Raymond spies upon the hilltop ceremony the following night. He creates an elder sign da, 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 <laughs> around the Veyan statue using chalk and performs a ritual of his
1: own. Definitely an investigator if ever I saw one.
2: Except there's this whole thing of him doing something preordained. He's not, I think, even sure at this stage why he's doing all these things, but he's just doing them.
0: And I'm pretty sure all the villagers are saying what they're doing is for... The, the greater, greater good. good. The, the greater good. <laughs> Only in this case, they're not sure what the greater good is, because <laughs> they've all forgotten.
2: <laughs> uh. The villagers conduct their ceremony, using the naked form of a young woman as their altar. They surround her with the remaining vasins, and call upon Great Lord Saeika, the one who waits in his eternal darkness, the one who slumbers through eons of unnamed time, dweller in the dark hill, master of time, master of life, master of death. That's a lot to live up to,
0: isn't it?
1: It's one hell of an introduction.
0: And these ceremonies, there's always a naked young woman, isn't it? Yeah, yes. They could have a bit more diversity in, in that, I think.
1: As Ramon's own ritual reaches completion, he unites with... We'll go with Sayoha this time. <laughs> who is revealed as something all-encompassing, of which the other deities of the mythos are only parts.
2: Oh, yeah. This whole description goes on for... What, about four pages? Five pages? Yes. <laughs> Possibly too long. I don't know. This was my favourite part of the story, this whole sort yeah. of psychedelic, not quite a vision quest, but descent into madness, descent into cosmic unity.
1: It's that bit at the end of 2001. The whole thing at this point just washed over me. I just heard words being spouted at me by the computer and I had no fucking idea what was going on.
2: Oh, no, no. This is the bit that, that really clicked with me up until this point as paul mentioned it felt like a fairly bog standard call of cthulhu type thing oh
0: well, no i don't think up until this point i think before this point it, it, it came together it had some good stuff i think
2: yeah no. maybe but i mean this for me was certainly the point at which it tipped over into something genuinely weird
0: The hatred flowed over and into his new being, and with a final shock of horror he realised that the hatred came out of him too, that it had always been a part of him, that he himself was part of the being he now belonged to, his mortal body had only been a messenger. One of the many fragments Sieger had used, a small shard of essential being, a demon seed sent out through the centuries a combination of cells a genetic structure engraved in the dna chains of the amino acids in his brain cells which one day would find the way the necessary gate into darkness where its parent body was waiting dreaming and
1: hating ramon is reborn within soha as the prisoner and the guardian the prison and the gate the past and the present and the unborn and never to be future and just rattles on more titles like his bloody god there's (laughs) so many of them just keep on coming Uh,
2: but i don't know i find all these titles all these descriptions as being really quite evocative i mean obviously you know it's meant to be an echo of york sothoth and being the gate and the key but This whole sort of union of opposites aspect ties in very much with Saika being all-encompassing, that it fits within the the sort of mystical aspects of it just being everything. And again, for me, that that really works. The story has this whole wraparound structure with a different narrator we realise probably at this stage trying to introduce themselves to this this woman and telling her a bit about Saiga. It wraps back around into this postscript where we learn from that narrator that Ramon died that night but, like this other narrator, this unnamed narrator, that there are others of Saiga's bloodline still amongst us who are travelling the world looking for more of their kind, ready to return to the Dunkelhügel with greater knowledge of what must be done. Did you get any firm sense of what all this was building towards it's clearly something apocalyptic or something, not even something apocalyptic, but something transformative, something catastrophic. But I don't think it was necessarily pinned down precisely in the story. It was more hinted at, wasn't it? Unless I missed something.
1: As I said before, I think that while it was, if I went back and had a look at it, it was quite rich in what it describes. But on that initial God, listening, reading, the whole thing just flowed over me and I couldn't take any of it in. That it didn't seem to have a focus. It just seemed like chaos. Maybe if that's what it was emulating, that it's just akin to this force being unleashed upon earth, that maybe something akin to like a manifestation of Azathoth, pure and unbridled chaos. Because all that this God is described as is just hatred. But what does that hate do? It's very nebulous. It isn't exactly well defined what happens when and if this thing ever gets out.
2: Hmm. I'm not sure about that, because there is this idea that the story puts forward that Saika is everything. Everything within the mythos, all the deities, uh, everything throughout time is just an aspect of Saika. I quite like that then contradiction, almost, that it is everything and yet it is contained in this one place. but. I guess the thing that I wasn't quite so clear about is what these people who carry aspects of him within their DNA are ultimately trying to do. I mean, it sounded like Ramon there was, what, he'd taken one of the veins and had disabled it and partially freed or partially liberated Saika. So yeah, maybe I guess the others who are following in his footsteps are going along and doing the same with the rest of them or yeah, ultimately trying to unleash Saika. But what I wasn't quite so sure on is what ultimately that would mean. Because if Saika hmm. is, is already everything then what necessarily would change if, if it were no longer bound by those guardians to that one location?
1: It has a lot of echoes for me of when I went and read uh, Through the Gates of the Silver Key. That everything, when you pass through the ultimate gate, you realise you are just a shard of consciousness of Yog-Sothoth. There's lots of echoes from that, from that story that seem to be transformed slightly in this one, into this new god.
0: Yeah, it feels like something that is kind of touching on that concept of, you know, things man was not meant to know, Mm. and that perhaps it poses more questions than it presents answers. So it gives you a sense of wonder about what is going on and what this character is doing, and you know, and you can discuss it, but I'm not sure it gives, you know, I'm not sure you're going to find concrete answers in there.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. But when we're looking at these things from a gaming perspective, our requirements perhaps somewhat different than if we were writing them as fiction, because there is this expectation that you have to present something more concrete or at least...
1: Defined. Yeah,
2: within a game. Hmm. And so if we're looking at this from a gaming perspective, what what does that actually mean? Yeah, in which case I think... Yeah, I think you've got to sort of take
0: it and uh, think how you can apply it to a game. Well, let's let's do that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, let's give that some thought. We can turn to um, look how Sieger is described in Malleus Monstrorum. Well, indeed, in the core rulebook. Obviously, it describes pretty much what we've got here, this deity. In Malleus, we get more information, so we get some ideas of blessings that it can give. And... As you uh, mentioned earlier, Matt, it gives the blessing of dark eyes in which its followers might remove their eyes but get night vision.
1: When I was looking this up, I think I stumbled across a Wikipedia entry that it resembled some other creature that was in some other, like a video game, which i passing reference to it because, A, I don't play video games, so the reference kind of just bounced off me and I had no idea what it was talking about. But did it find that this actually got lots of similarities with other bits out there that I have run across? Particularly thinking of cult, uh, She Who Waits Below is mm. described as this eye in darkness. And you have those people that gravitate towards her also rip their own eyes out. So they become these blind guardians of the labyrinth. So there was a lot of, a lot of parallels with that.
0: It's quite a common motif, isn't it? The, the, the removal of eyes. I mean, you yeah. see it in... um Event Horizon. Event Horizon, yes. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> we also see it in Stranger Things, the, the recent series of Stranger Things, with the old guy from the house who's removed his eyes. You know, anything to do with eyes causes a lot of anxiety in people, so mm-hmm. it's a, a, something that is used quite a lot in, in horror. We also get the, the blessing, in inverted commas, lighter version, yeah. so you can't stand light, and it can actually cause physical damage. I'm not sure how that's a blessing, but... Uh, I've already got
1: that, and I certainly don't find it helpful.
0: I was going to say, I think there's quite a few role players who are probably affected by this. <laughs> and the third one was regenerate, which is quite straightforward. Um, well, quite straightforward in that you get two hit points per round back. You've got that regenerative ability that we see with many of the entities in the in the monster chapter. However, the downside of it is your body becomes disfigured and uh, misshapen, which is
2: yeah could be quite cool. I wonder where that comes from, because we don't see any indication of that within this story, do we? But the deity has been, I don't know if it's really been used within fiction since this. I think this is one of these examples of a mythos deity where a lot of the expansion of it, a lot of the development of it has really come out of gaming. Hmm.
1: And even then, there's not much in gaming. <laughs> there's only, and Scott sort of made uh, a note of this in the script, there's only one scenario I came across, which is Sufficient Unto the Day by Wood Ingram, which is in Worlds of Cthulhu number three, which I would have loved to have had a look through. But currently, there is a whole room of junk between me and the bookcase with that book in it. But I remember I've got all of the uh, six issues of Worlds of Cthulhu with the, the elder sign that doesn't quite line up and the one the last <laughs> one with a black spine that was completely out of character with the rest. <laughs>
0: Some quite cool abilities it's got, though. Um, dark Mesmerism, where the, the player characters, or, or indeed anybody else, but really the investigators, have to roll an extreme power roll to resist being summoned to the place where Sieger resides. Mm-hmm. Your character's being sort of called away to do things then you know that you have no memory of doing. It's quite a, a cool thing it can use in a game. Drain Light, for a couple of magic points, Sieger can uh, cancel out all light within a mile. Always good. And this one particularly, bestow vitality, heal all people within one kilometer. However, they're then marked by Sieger. And if they start to work against Sieger, then then siegen can kind of release that effect
1: and their flesh begins to corrupt at the rate of a few hit points every day kind of emphasizing that kind of hatred by making it a vindictive god it's hey i'll help Mm. you but at the moment you turn your back on me you're fucked (laughs) i do like particularly when it talked about darkness and spreading it with that power there that there's a note about how you can use it in games where if you had a power cut and you plunge a city into darkness that everyone there can potentially have a chance to be touched or at least experience some form of this great old one that'd be a nice little way to start the scenario that there's a power cut that happens and then weird shit starts happening out there in the dark (laughs) a bit like the james herbert novel the dark again that's a very very similar kind of premise that when yeah when it gets dark bad shit happens
2: again that's not necessarily reflected in the story is it because the manifestation or at least the ritual takes place during the full moon so all right it's night time but that's the the time at which the night is brightest so mm. it seems to be almost paradoxical there
1: it's when his eyes open in the sky like i said that's no moon
2: i was thinking from a gaming perspective that if we go back to the idea that these people have been going back to the Dunkelhügel, trying to dig out the rest of these these statues and disable them and release the binding on Saiga that, that keeps it bound to that hill, then once it's free from there, then you know it's it affects what we're seeing there isn't going to be limited to just that small town in Germany. And I just wondered whether you could have, as a setup for a scenario, this slow creeping realisation that once a year or once a month or whatever, everyone has just unconsciously been doing something that no one can remember it. There's just like this one lost day a year where everyone is sort of filling in the gaps with Fake memories or whatever, but you're beginning to find clues that just once a year, everyone in the world, everyone is just doing something strange, some kind of ritual that they just can't remember.
1: And they called it Oktoberfest. <laughs> <laughs> a great way you've got basically shitloads of booze. Yeah, of course, you blackout. Job done. Easy pit is a bit of mass cover up that
2: was ever invented. But that would be quite creepy, I think, that that realisation that there is something happening on that scale, that just everyone hmm. is blind to. What is it building towards? Could you convince the rest of the world it's happening? Would you just be seen as mad if you tried to?
1: It's what happens every February 29th, just that those three years were in a row where it happens, no one blanks it out. And then it comes around to that every fourth year. Ah, uh-huh. so every year is a leap year.
0: Mm-hmm. and can you punch it that's what we really <laughs> want to know <laughs> can you punch sieger
1: well give him a poke in the eye quite literally
0: you can you can punch him in the eye but you know it's, it's pretty tough it's got a shit ton of hit points 160 hit points and 100 percent fighting skill and deals like 8d6 damage and has five attacks so basically every round it can punch your party to death it can like crush you with its (laughs) tentacles five of you you're gonna be squished yeah you could stand at a distance and shoot it but it can move super fast so you can't outrun it and you can shoot it like i said but it's you know only takes minimum damage from impaling weapons such as guns so this is uh you know you can try and punch the darkness but you ain't gonna get far
2: on the other hand If you accept the idea that Saiga is everything and that everything you encounter is part of it, then surely whatever you punch, you're punching Saiga. So, yes, you can punch it.
1: Stop punching yourself. Stop punching yourself. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the Tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriends of Jackson Elias. Deity number two, Byatis. Biatis originates in Robert Bloch's story, The Shambler from the Stars, first published in September 1935, issue of Weird Tales. The story is better known for being the origin story of the Star Vampires and Ludwig Prin's De Vermis Mysteries, not to mention the death of a character based on Lovecraft, leading to the writing of The Haunter of the Dark. But that mention of Biatis is very tangential, like it's one line, mm. appearing in a list of entities mentioned in Divermis Mysteries. Yeah, it's one of those ones, like, quite a few of the ones that Lovecraft
0: does, where he just mentions a name and then moves on. So we don't really learn anything about Byattis here.
2: Yes, the full reference in the story is, I recall allusions to such gods of divination as Father Yig, Dark Han, and Serpent-bearded Byattis. For a start there, I mean, there's that mention gods of divination, which... As we'll look at how the god's been developed by Ramsey Campbell, that doesn't really come into that aspect of him. I guess you don't necessarily see that with Yig either in The Curse of Yig. I'm intrigued by what Bloch meant there by gods of divination, whether he had something in mind or whether he just put that in because it sounded cool. My money's on the latter.
1: Yeah. You can guarantee what your future will be if you meet him. <laughs> Doing that whole, what will happen if divination? Yeah, you meet Byatis when well, you try and punch him and it don't go well.
2: <laughs> don't get ahead of us here, Bat. Yeah, We need Paul to describe what happens when we punch him later
1: on. <laughs> yeah, I've got that lined up. Don't worry, people. <laughs> While Block never mentioned Byatis again, Ramsey Campbell developed the deity in his early story, The Room in the Castle. First published in the nineteen sixty four Arkham House collection, The Inhabitants of the Lake and Less Welcome Tenants. You know, where we first get that lovely guy Glacky, turns up.
0: Yeah, is Campbell quite young when he writes this? Very. Yeah, it shows, doesn't it?
2: In fact, there was an even earlier draft of this. I forget what it's called. It's not called The Room in the Castle. But August Earlith heavily edited it and gave him lots of suggestions on how to develop it. The story is improved for that. I don't think this is one of Campbell's better mythos tales. But there are aspects of the writing which, again, I think are far better prose-wise than you'd expect from someone who was i I don't know 14 or 15 or whatever when he wrote this but yeah in terms of the the actual content of the structure of the story this is basic Mm -hmm.
0: in the story a researcher in folklore stumbles across an old tale of cooper a farmer from the seven valley who encounters a demon on the road outside berkeley
1: he said that it had but one eye like a cyclops and had claws like unto a crab. He said also that it had a nose like the elephants that tis said can be seen in Africa, and great serpent-like growths which hung from its face like a beard in the fashion of some sea monster. That is really taking serpent bearded by a really long (laughs) stretch.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's basically saying tentacles, but, but describing them as being like serpents.
1: I was just thinking a snake that hadn't stood close enough to a razor, but he's actually making it, no, there are full-blown snakes coming out of the guy's chin.
2: And why not? In a more contemporary book on folklore by an author called Sangster, the narrator reads that The being was supposedly Byatis, a pre-human being which was worshipped as a deity. It was released, according to the legend, by Roman soldiers from behind a stone door in a camp of indeterminate origin built long before the advent of Romans in Britain. Apparently, the terrifying Barclay Toad was the same being as the deity Byatus. Indeed, though the being has only one eye, it does, when its proboscis is retracted occasionally, resemble the great shape of the toad. How it was imprisoned in the Barclay dungeon and how it eventually escaped is not told in the legend. It had some hypnotic power, so that it may have hypnotised someone to open the cell door, though it is likely that this power was only used to render its victims helpless.
0: The book further relates that a local noble, Sir Gilbert Morley, had stirred the horror in the woods out of its festering sleep and imprisoned it in a cellar room in his great mansion off the Berkeley Road no trace of which remains nowadays. As long as it is under his power, he could tap its inherent cosmic vitality and communicate with the sendings of Cthulhu, Glaki,
2: Deoloth, and Shabnigarath. So, basically, he's trapped this god and he's using it as a telephone or or radio (laughs) receiver. Well, in effect, yes, yes. It's a big tentacled radio.
1: I'd like to look at it more along the lines of the Hypnotoad from Futurama, which is, given this hypnotic gaze that it has, it's pretty much describing that, except Hypnotoad has two eyes. (laughs) That's the difference. Yeah.
0: And also, I noticed that Sieger was referred to as being frog-like or toad-like as well at times, weren't they? There was some part of it.
2: No, it was its uh, followers, the, the Nagai. Yes, right, right. Which is interesting because I played a game recently which Andy Goodman ran. He'd drawn it from a number of sources, but partly from the Bookhounds of London publication. In it, it 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 associated them, the Nagai with Byattis. They were his servitors in ah. that one. And so yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected.
1: Yeah. I remember looking these up in Malus Monstorum last night. I think there is mention that they are used as servitor creatures by other gods and other other creatures. Yes. So, yeah, it does make it more universal in its unwholesomeness appeal. A quick dive into Ludwig Pring's De Vermis Mysteries reveals a little more about the god. By Attis, the serpent bearded, the god of forgetfulness, definitely sounds a lot like me there, came with the great old ones from the stars, called by obeisances made to his image which was brought by the Deep Ones to earth. He may be called by the touching of his image by a living being. His gaze brings darkness on the mind, and it is told that those who look upon his eye will be forced to walk to his clutches. He feasts upon those who stray to him, and from those upon whom he feasts he draws a part of their vitality, and so grows vaster. Nom, 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 Mm. Pac-Man God, nom, 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 (laughs) nom. (laughs)
2: Uh, But there are a couple of parallels here to other things we've talked about. I mean, for a start, that whole god of forgetfulness automatically then I think has got a parallel with uh, Saika because, you know, they both Mm, make you forget. But there's also that passing mention about he may be called by the touching of his image by a living being that he's very easy to contact very easy to call like that that you know it it seems almost like you know mere awareness or at least mere contact with his image is enough and that is quite reminiscent of Glarkey in that respect in that when we were talking about Glarkey earlier a number of episodes ago there was that whole thing about how, you know, it seemed like just thinking about him might be enough to bring you into contact with him. And we tend to see in Call of Cthulhu the idea that these, these contact spells, these call spells, are really quite difficult things to learn and pull off and so on. But Campbell hmm. keeps taking us back to the idea that, no, actually, some of these gods are really frighteningly easy to contact. And I, I don't know, for me, that's scarier. It seems
1: like we've dodged a bullet because that reference that it makes to passingly about the Deep Ones brought this uh, image to Earth reminds me of when I first stumbled across this, the very first ever mention of this god that I came across in gaming. Paul, I think, played in this. Do you remember when Matt Knot ran Escape from Innsmouth for us at the, at the club? Yeah. If I remember right, that bloody safe that I tried to get into in the shop had an image of Biatus in there, or it was either there or it was oh. up in kind of the estate house towards the end. And I remember going, what the hell is this? And Matt going, I don't know, it's just it's a statue of Biatus." <laughs> I had to look it up in the Cthulhu uh, Mythos Encyclopedia and go, oh, so that's a crazy thing. And I don't remember any of us ever touching it, so I think we dodged a bullet.
0: No, that right. well, if there was a Mythos artifact to touch, you would have touched it, Matt. I can guarantee. So you would have read it, put it on, licked it, whatever it was. You'd have activated it in some way.
1: Yes. If you lick it, it's yours. Oh yeah.
0: Of course, our narrator decides to investigate these stories for himself, despite dire warnings from everyone he discusses them with. He heads off to the Seven Valley in search of the ruins of Morley's castle. There is surprisingly little left beyond the trapdoor leading to the cellars. Dun dun dun. <laughs>
2: Heading down into the darkness, like any good investigator, our narrator encounters an elder sign etched into the floor, which he inadvertently scratches out. And something terrible starts rising from the darkness, and so he flees in terror, because you would. You'd run away at this stage. You're down in a creepy old cellar. There's something huge moving around down there. You wouldn't really stick around to work out what it was, would you?
1: no and you've just scratched out the thing keeping it there good on you wonderful investigator right there (laughs) the narrator resolves to deal with the horror he believes he is unleashed stupid other than he's a pulp hero and has got more than 30 points of luck
0: he's gonna punch it
1: yep there you go (laughs) naturally this involves returning to the castle with a quantity of petrol and a pyromaniac's zeal hell fucking yeah i'm so glad you read
0: this bit <laughs> matt this is so you yeah. it's got you written all over it when i read this
1: he embraces burning the shit down he really all he did was a stick of dynamite
0: he passed the gm uh, the keeper a note saying can i buy some dynamite The GM said no, and he's like, well, can I get some petrol? And the GM's like,
1: oh, shit, I guess.
2: (laughs) I buy all the petrol, all of it.
1: Why, why did I say there was a petrol station on the way to this place? Why? (laughs) He pulls the petrol into the cellar and ignites it, but spies something terrible in the smoke.
0: Perhaps it was merely the effect of some anaesthetic quality of the gas, which augmented my imagination but the clouds seemed to congeal at one point of its ascent into a great swollen toad-like shape which flapped away on its vast bat wings towards the west. Yes, I think inhaling too much fumes can do this.
2: <laughs> what drives him to the brink of madness, however, is what he spies down in the burning cellars themselves. A black object slid from underneath the edge of a wall and began to expand upward, slapping itself blindly against the sides of the smaller room. It resembled a gigantic snake more than anything else, but it was eyeless and had no other facial features. And I was confused by the connections this colossal abnormality could have with Byattis. Then... "'I understood, and gave one shriek of horror-fraught realisation "'as I plunged out of the room of malignancy. "'It had grown too vast for the cellar-room,' Sangster had written, "'but had not mentioned just what growth had taken place with each living sacrifice. "'For the snake-like thing that had reached for me, "'that was as wide as a human body and impossibly long,' had merely been the face tentacle of the abomination by Attis.
1: And this is what happens when Medusa didn't shave every day.
0: It's like, there's a few things going on here. It totally feels like that last line is an attempt at one of Lovecraft's italicised final lines of his story. Oh, yes. Also, I want to make some room signs, one of which reads, The Room of Malignancy. <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great phrase.
0: Yeah. What do you keep in that room? that's the room of malignancy do you want to look in not really
2: <laughs> i don't know I've, I've encountered some bathrooms that should probably have that on the outside
0: it reminds me this week i was looking at some houses on, on right move one of the properties was listed i don't know say as a four bed or whatever and there's bedroom one bedroom two bedroom three and then there's another room but it doesn't say bedroom four it just says locked room <laughs> It's like, that's on the room plan. It's even got measurements. It's
2: just called locked room. I thought it was brilliant. Who would label it locked room? We do not speak of the locked room, Paul. We do not speak of the locked room.
1: Yeah, you buy it. You can never go in it. It's locked. (laughs) Yeah, the the whole kind of silver cross placed on the door, the nails at odd angles where they've been hammered through the door into the frame kind of give away that this thing is not to be opened. Have you ever got into that safe yet, Matt? No, it's still under our stairs. (laughs) Trying to get a locksmith out to even entertain the idea of trying to pick this thing is like trying to pull teeth. It's For some reason, locksmiths don't want money, it seems. <laughs> Either that or they know something that we don't. <laughs> Have you not tried dynamite? My dad was contemplating <laughs> coming around and trying to literally use like a uh, a jackhammer to uh, try and literally dig the thing out.
0: Or a drill? Drill the lock out? Or drill the whole thing out. So Matt has got, for the listeners, in in the house Matt has now been living in for about five years... Matt has got a a ground safe in one of the floors, but it's locked, closed, so you can't get into it. Underneath our stairs, yeah. So the GM has said, okay, well, you've moved into the house and there's a safe in the floor. And you, as an investigator, you're like, oh, never mind.
1: (laughs) it's more like me as the investigator goes yeah my credit rating shit i can't afford the 250 quid that they're asking for to try and get in this and then when i finally have that money i go back and go now that locksmith don't work anymore
0: the keeper is clearly desperate for you to open it yourself because when you ask the keeper like can i call a locksmith he's like yeah no no they're all busy <laughs> None of, none, none, of our <laughs> answer your call. none of them come you've got to do something uh. if any listeners are uh professional like bank robbers <laughs> can they come around and break into that safe
2: or even an enthusiastic amateur bank robber we're not fussy yeah
0: totally yeah we're not we don't need professionals here
1: yeah we'll, we'll do that whole line of very dangerous you go first <laughs> you can go under my stairs and try and work <laughs> this thing out
2: yeah oh it's under the stairs as well brilliant yeah. yeah i used to work with someone whose wife was a bank robber brilliant but i i don't know whatever happened to them It was weird. I mean, it was this guy I worked with, oh gosh, I mean, like 30 years ago. And I was just reading the paper one day and saw a picture in there and I thought, oh, hang on, that looks like Keith. He'd had a gambling problem, I think, got them a lot of money into debt. And his wife at some stage had just sort of cracked and had gone into a bank while they were on holiday somewhere in Essex with a cucumber in her pocket so that it looked a bit like a gun <laughs> and had held the bank up and had got away with some money. And it had gone so well that she did it a couple more times and I think got caught on the third attempt.
0: That is a way to fix a gambling problem. Yeah, yeah. You, you, your partner's got a problem And you fix the problem by robbing a bank. Also, you you could totally rob Matt with a cucumber, (laughs) because that is like
1: kryptonite to Matt. However, is that vegetable fully loaded?
2: She ended up, I think, being sent to prison for a long time for armed robbery, because apparently just the threat of having a weapon, even if it turns out just to be a cucumber, still qualifies as armed robbery. So I think she was sent away for something like 20 years
1: kind of surrealist armed robbery but yeah nine millimeter cucumber <laughs> yeah very very deadly strange
2: anyway sorry that was a complete tangent <laughs>
0: <laughs> back to biatis the lesser horror yeah how does uh Byattis feature in call of cthulhu well biatis doesn't feature in the core rule book but does feature in the malleus monstrorum where we get, you know, various uh, things that it can do, some blessings that it can give. It can uh, enable you to grow bigger, increasing your size, and it can make you toad-like. Neither of which, well, I guess blessings, you know, you can be bigger and stronger and more hit points and so on. But, yeah, you know, becoming more toad-like.
1: It's the great old one of video games, because you've got Pac-Man and now you've got Frogger. So there's, oh, there's definitely, Frogger. yeah. yeah. I love well, Frogger. I was just
2: wondering whether... All these spam messages that used to go around back in the 90s about penis enlargement pills, whether these were just essence of biatis, mm. just very localized that yeah, perhaps you could grow your own biatis face tentacle, just not on your face. And then some
0: abilities that it's got. Well, in the toad-like form, it's got the hypnotic gaze. So we're back to Matt's hypnotoad again.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you can summon it with idols. Which will override any wards that are keeping it in prison, uh, but it will pop back after sort of
1: uh, a number of minutes. A mythos bungee cord that allows it to go peekaboo, land somewhere, devours you, and then goes back and go, rubs its belly, going "I'm full now. I'll wait for someone else to call me."
2: Well, considering how big it's got, this idea of suddenly being able to summon it somewhere by by touching the idol, that would be a great way of just like flattening a city block or something like that. Is you turn up with this idol by Atis in a bag just touch it mm. demolish the area put it back in the bag and fuck off that's the kind of thing i was
1: thinking of honestly when i read this was i'm thinking how the hell do you use this in a scenario or in a game the best thing i could come up with is like a trap that you turn up with this idol you wait for a poor investigator to touch it and then splat they're dead but I like the idea of like a tactical nuclear biatis that you could just drop one of these idols into a, either a rival cult's lair or a rival investigator's layer, and then just all of a sudden, toad, it's like uh, <laughs> the end of Watchmen all over again. It's just <laughs> blam. It would have to be
0: a lot of people, I think, to swell up to that kind of size. I think there's a maximum stat for it. What is it?
2: Also, bear in mind, I mean, the story in which biatis first appears was written 60 years ago. So that's, you know, 60 years of growth what you think has grown since then oh yeah
0: yeah so uh it's standard form it's got a size of 150 which you know is is not massive it's kind of um, probably horse size and then it grows i think 3 to 3d6 size for each human it eats ah yes up to a size of 400 so um it's pretty big
2: I get the impression from the story that it's much bigger than that. I mean, it sounds like just the tentacle being that large, it sounds like the size might be in the thousands there. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: Yeah, that is one big hypnotoad. Yeah. The one thing I did find about him was that also, there are, a, admittedly, all these come from the Goatswood source, but unsurprisingly, given it's the, mm. the Campbell mythos stuff, that he appears in quite a few mythos tomes. There's uh, The Diary of Sir Gilbert Morley and Legendary and Customs of the Seven Valley, and Notes on Witchcraft in Monmouthshire, Gloucestershire and the Berkeley region, the third volume of The Revelations of Glarkey, Divermist Mysteries. He pops up in a lot of places and yet the only scenario material I could find him in, also from the Goatswood book, is that he's mentioned in the campaign overview, the kind of campaign framework that's provided for the Winthrop legacy. But that's it. No, nothing else I could
2: find. Again, in this game that Andy Goodman ran, and I don't know how much of this he took from bookhounds and how much he wrote himself, but in that, he had Biatis basically underneath London, having grown to the extent where it was like this, you know, substrate beneath the entire city, this sort of living structure underneath everything, which I kind of liked. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, can you punch the Hypnotoad? Well, yes, you can. But it has got 10 points of armour. It's got a very tough hide. So, you know, you're going to have to
2: punch it pretty fucking hard. Boing. Then even if you got a D6 damage bonus...
1: I mean, you can punch it, but you're not going to hurt it. Even with Knuckle Dusters, you still get a chance of equaling the maximum possible uh, armour.
2: Spiked Knuckle Dusters, Matt, because that way you've got a chance of impaling with one chance yeah.
1: <laughs> mm.
0: it gets a couple of attacks on you um doing around sort of 346 damage 45 hit points so it's the kind of thing that a party could perhaps take on you know toad battle but you know with those 10 points of armor you know make it pretty damn tough and if you do reduce it to zero hit points it explodes in a cloud of dust and reforms within
1: a year in its prison Death is only reprieve from its imprisonment. Yes,
2: yes. I was wondering with the way that it just grows through eating people, whether at some point it's got to outgrow its containment, particularly with that older sign having been a face. There's nothing really keeping it there anymore. And so if it keeps growing and, you know, kind of bursts out of its prison, at some point... That growth, as it's consuming more and more people, has got to become exponential until it basically just devours all life on Earth. And that's it. It's spread across all land masses. And we're all gone. The
0: giant space toad.
2: It does mention also
0: cults. We were talking about cults. Mm. So it does say it's got no human cult. There's no cult of people who are lining up to feed themselves to biatists, apparently. There are some deep ones, as mentioned, that revere it, and maybe some serpent people too.
1: They just like the chin though. <laughs> they like the chin? Yes, yeah, where all this beard comes from, those serpent-bearded goodness.
0: Oh yes. Yes, they, they do like that. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
2: Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you first of all to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name.
0: Starting off with a thank you to Thomas Selzer. And thank you very
1: much to the singular Jack. And
2: thank you very much to Lewis Green.
1: And thank you to Scott Key. And thank you very much to Peter Belsom. And thank
0: you to Dandabar. And thank you very much to Finitely Failed
1: you know this is just fate coming around to me <laughs> oh it is i thank you very much to the singular and might, might i say amazingly greatly named matthew <laughs> not that I'm biased at all
2: and thank you to okamin
1: and thanks to nick Spalding. and also thank you much to stefan and thank you
2: to chris van Voren.
1: and thank you to jonathan p thank you also to nick Davison.
2: and thank you finally to xyphosura and if, as ever, we have mangled any of your names, please do let us know, and we will have another bash and do better next time.
0: And can I say thank you to Nick, Nick Davidson, for the Christmas card.
2: Ah, yeah. yes. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where people might find podcast reviews or just mentioning it on social media to like-minded people or maybe just, I I don't know, putting your recommendation in a hole in the ground and feeding it victims until it bursts forth and people just can't ignore it from that point.
1: You can always try punching a god in the eye and say, Oi, listen to this podcast as well. That might have... uh interesting repercussions
2: okay
0: well that's your lot about siega and by until next time it's a goodbye from
1: me
2: and cheerio from me
1: and a farewell from me
2: hello blasphemous tomes dot com